Welcome to Alaskwatch, the show all about Bigfoot in the great state of Alaska. I'm your host, Beans Baxter. So lace up your boots, zip up your coat, and come with me on an adventure as we explore all things cryptid in the last frontier. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the seventh episode of Alaska Watch. I'm uh, really excited about this one. We're going to talk about one of my favorite Bigfoot books, which is all about Bigfoot in Alaska. It's called Raincoast Sasquatch by J. Robert Alley. Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard of this book if you don't own it outright. If you don't own it, I suggest you either see about renting it or renting it. Uh, checking out your local library or picking up a copy uh, to own. Uh, you know, I busted my copy out here the other day and started looking through it to prep for the show here. And I was really surprised. It was published in 2003. And um, I think uh, that's going on about 16 or so years ago now. I didn't realize it was that old. I, for some reason, I was thinking it was published after 2010. And, uh, I don't, I don't know exactly when I got the book. I thought I got it after, not too long after it had been published, but um, I can't really remember. The book, uh, if you're looking for it, it's available on Amazon. I'm sure it's probably available in um, some bookstores like uh, Barnes and Noble. And uh, just, uh, you know, let's talk about the book itself here for a second before we get into the subject matter. Uh, the subtitle is The Bigfoot Sasquatch Records of Southeast Alaska, Coastal British Columbia, and Northwest Washington from Puget Sound to Yakutat. And on the cover, there is a tribal mask of uh, what I'm assuming is some tribe's version of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Uh, the book actually has quite a few illustrations in it. Uh, there's a lot of drawings. Some are actually done by um, Mr. Alley himself. Uh, some are done by another gentleman, and then there's some straight-up just pictures. There's photographs of totems, totem poles, totem masks, uh, tribal ceremonies where tribal members are dressed up as uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Wild Woman of the Woods, whatever, uh, what have you. And uh, just a lot, there's a lot in this book. I forgot actually how much there was in here. It's uh, over 300 pages. And there's a lot of cool maps, and there's a good uh, index in it. And I forgot about the maps. And remember last episode, I was telling you guys, you know, we're going to be going to Prince of Wales Island uh, here pretty soon this year. And I had forgotten all about the maps in the book. And when I busted it out the other day and started going through it, and I saw the maps, and I saw the locations of the sightings and the stories in there, and I just got so excited. And I had to take a picture of the map with my phone, and I'm going to keep it for reference. And um, I'm going to go back through the book. I read it uh, kind of quick and dirty just for this episode. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it again uh, page by page and take my time in preparation for our trip to uh, Prince William Sound this summer. So I'm really excited about that trip, especially now that I've kind of peeked in the book here and seen just how many stories and tales are coming out of that area, out of the Prince William Sound area, Prince William Sound, Prince of Wales Island uh, area. And uh, I can't wait. So, you know, that being said, uh, I'm going to talk about some of my favorite stories in the book. Uh, obviously, I'm not even, I think we're going to go through about five or six of them here, and that's not even 
a drop in the bucket really uh, as to what all's in that book. And I'll kind of get into what's in the book other than uh, accounts and stuff like that after we go through them. But um, there is a lot in this book and there's a reason why it's a lot of people's favorite Bigfoot book. I think, um, oh, I think was it Cliff Barackman was talking about it the other day. Uh, somebody else was as well, like Derek Randalls or somebody I think was talking about it. It's just, you know, it's on a lot of people's, if not their their favorite Bigfoot book, it's in a lot of people's top 10 lists of favorite Bigfoot books. So um, I'm going to get into it and uh, we're going to talk about something. This is actually one of the stories that got me really excited. Uh, this is a sighting. It's a roadside crossing that happened on the Cloak Hollis Highway, which uh, when I get to Prince of Wales Island, I'm hoping to travel this road quite a bit. Uh, I'm thinking after I read some of the accounts here and the number of roadside crossings they have, I'm thinking uh, I'm going to spend the night, uh, we're going to stay up kind of late and we're just going to cruise the roads a little bit, uh, hoping to have a sighting. So this encounter um, starts out, for anyone hoping to see a Sasquatch in Alaska from a vehicle at night, it seems the Kowak Hollis Highway crossing the middle of Prince William Prince of Wales Island may be the best bet. It is from the middle stretch between Harris River and Kowak Lake that two independent reports were forwarded relating one to re, relating to one 1993 highway incident involving Mr. I.W. and his wife, then a Kowak Prince of Wales Island. So they both lived there on the island when they had the sighting. Although I was not able to interview the witnesses in person, both secondhand accounts agreed in detail alleging a sighting to have taken place about 2.30 a.m. while the couple were driving home to Kowak from the ferry that arrives late at Hollis on the east coast of the island. They were driving over the middle of the island somewhere near the junction of the main highway with Heidelberg Road and the south end of Kowak Lake coming around a bend in the highway when they picked out a creature crossing the highway in front of them. The husband had apparently immediately exclaimed, look, a bear, to which his wife replied, yes, but look at that, since when does a bear walk on his hind legs? Both accounts agree the witnesses stated it was tall, dark in color, and moved quickly. The middle of Prince of Wales Island is quite rugged at this location, densely forested, with second-growth hemlock and cedar. This report is just three miles south of another sighting alleged to have taken place two years later, and one report of an unusual nest. So that account, it gets me really excited for my trip to Prince of Wales Island. Um, I can't wait to uh, drive on some of those roads late at night. And, uh, you know, we'll probably have, uh, hopefully we'll have somebody with me that can act as a spotter and have a thermal and a camera ready and, uh, or vice versa. I can, they can drive and I can act as a spotter and uh, hopefully something will happen. Um, I just love tales of roadside crossings like that because they just, you know, it gives me hope that maybe, uh, Someday, uh, one's just going to walk out in front of the road in front of me. So, um, that's, that's, uh, just a small, there's, there's a several other roadside crossings, uh, that are detailed in the book. And, uh, there's even an interesting one that, uh, I didn't, um, uh, include of one, um, running across a road that was chasing after a deer. So, uh, there's a couple of stories in here that, uh, that kind of support, that uh, Sasquatch is a, is a predatory animal and um, at least uh, uh, attempts <laughs> to capture uh, deer, assumingly to eat. I don't know what else they would be doing with them. So, uh, you know, there's some good stories in here, and uh, I'm going to get to some more here. This is one of my favorite ones, and this is uh, a tale of uh, a Sasquatch on a boat. 
And uh, after I after I read this to you, I'll kind of tell you why um, why this uh, story is kind of important to me. So this encounter happened in 1951 or 1952 when the reporting party was a boy. Uh, it happened somewhere off of uh, off the coast of Prince Wells Island. And uh, the reporting party says, I was working with my grandfather on our 36-foot fishing boat, the Verna May, somewhere on Prince Wells Island. I don't remember the exact location, but I do remember us anchoring up close to shore one nice evening and going to bed. It was after midnight, and I had to I had got up on deck as we had no facilities inside the cabin. As I flipped open the cabin door onto the deck, I felt the boat rock, and right in front of me in my flashlight beam was this tall, hair-covered, man-like creature climbing up over the side of the boat. It was all wet, and he was dark brown or black. As soon as he saw me, he just kicked off backwards into the water with a big splash. Granddad came up quickly and looked with me, but it wasn't swimming on the surface anywhere. Then, just a few seconds later, as we could see, this seven- or eight-foot creature stood up out of the shallows about 40 yards away. It stood up on two legs and walked straight up into the forest. It sure covered that distance underwater fast. Granddad saw it stand up too, and he got real scared. He pulled the anchor and started the engine right away, and we got out of there. We kept moving for a time until we got to another anchorage late that night. In almost 50 years on the water and in the bush, that was the only time I ever seen one of these things. So I really, I really like that account, and uh, I'll tell you kind of why that was in my mind recently. Um, when we went to Port Chatham the second time, Okay, so this would have been back, uh, was it la- I believe it was last September uh, when we went to uh, Port Chatham. Well, we had uh, gotten a smaller boat to go on than we had the first time. Now, the first time we went, we had the Puckuck, which was this huge boat, and it had, you know, staterooms, and it was um, almost like a house. You know, you had to go through doors to get to areas, and, um, you know, it was uh, the state rooms were down kind of you know you had to go down these stairs to get to them so it was uh you know it, it was a pretty uh a pretty secure vessel well when we went the second time we didn't have the puckuck we had another boat that was uh, a smaller boat and it was used mainly for fishing charters and it did have some bunks down below in the uh the forward berth but uh with us you know it was me Stephen major adam davies and I think, I don't even remember how many people were in the film crew, like four or five. I think there was five of them. So there just wasn't enough beds to go around. So I had volunteered to sleep out on the deck. Now, granted, it was a covered deck. It had like a canvas over it. I wasn't sleeping out in the open, but uh, the back of the boat was completely open. The canvas was rolled up. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, like a, a small, probably uh, thigh-high um, gate uh, that, was between me and the water and uh so i'm sleeping on a cot and a sleeping bag out on the back of this boat and i'm laying there and i'm trying to get to sleep and all i can think about is this story from Rainco sasquatch where the kid walks up on the deck and there's a sasquatch trying to get on the boat and um i'm not going to say i lost sleep over it but it was definitely on my mind as i was trying to sleep and uh one night while we were out there uh, i was sleeping and there was an earthquake and, you know, they say, and the, the captain of the boat actually argued with me over this. He woke up and he thought something hit us. He was like, what was that? And I, the first thing my mind went to, even though I had been thinking about the Sasquatch story was it was an earthquake because it kind of felt like everything shook. Like I could, you know, it was like everything around us shook. It wasn't like just the boat shook. 
And uh, he said, no, you can't feel earthquakes in the water. So um, the next day, my wife had uh, texted me on my uh, Garmin inReach and was like, did you guys feel that earthquake? <laughs> so I'm 100% positive that I felt an earthquake on a boat in the middle of uh, Port Chatham. Uh, but uh, the captain of the boat still argues that with me. So I don't know what it was, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't a Sasquatch because my wife uh, felt it too. So anyway, that story was fresh on my mind as I'm laying on that cot outside uh, that boat, just uh, waiting to be uh, drug off into the water and uh, dragged up onto the shore like Albert Osman. But uh, that didn't happen, so I'm here to uh, relay this story to you from Raincoast Sasquatch. But uh, it's one of my favorite. And there's a couple more in here, too, from uh, Sasquatch interacting with boats. Um, one of my favorite ones is the guy sitting at the galley table. And I can't remember if he's eating or he's doing some paperwork or something. And he's just kind of mindlessly, uh, you know, sitting there. And this hairy arm reaches in through the porthole and grabs his arm. <laughs> it doesn't grab it forcefully. It just kind of reaches in and touches his arm and lifts it up. And... Um, I think uh, in the book, Dr. Alley speculates that uh, it was uh, it, it was uh, it had adapted to maybe uh, look for food on the boats or something. I, I don't know. I actually almost think it's the opposite. I think that some of these creatures are so human presence is so foreign to them that they haven't really they're not really sure to be that frightened of them. And I think they're very curious and I think it's more of an exploratory, like what's, what's this, what's going on behavior more than, uh, I'm going to reach my arm in here and hopefully grab, you know, something to eat. So, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It's a interesting point to ponder, but, uh, the next story that, uh, I want to, I want to read is it actually ties in really well with that point. I'm just, I was just talking about, about how these things may not be used to people, so uh, this one takes place pretty close to Juno. So this story is rel relatively, um, a more relatively recent one. It was in September 2001. It says, A Juno friend had just taken us on an evening hike up trail off the end of the gravel road west of town, and we had come back down. We were resting at a campfire we had near the foot of the trail, not far from our parked car. It was about 9.30 or 10 p.m. It was getting dark, and we heard a scuffling sound and footsteps coming out of the forest about 25 feet away. In the light of the fire, we looked up to see a black, hair-covered figure about six and a half feet tall with very broad shoulders. It had one arm held up over its face as if to shield its eyes and was edging close to us, peering at us. We called out, who are you, what do you want, but it didn't answer, and we began to get really nervous as it edged closer. It was covered all over with black hair, and its eyes reflected with the firelight all uh, with a whitish, and then, as it moved to the fire, we started to move away a reddish color. So I guess initially when they saw it, it had like a white eye shine. And then as it got closer to the fire, it looked red. We were standing about 15 feet away. I couldn't see his teeth his, and his mouth wasn't open. And the whole time he made, she keeps calling it a he, he made no sound at all. His body was more ape-like, hair all over, but his face was long and narrow with ash gray colored skin showing. We were still shouting, who the heck are you? And starting to back up, I was getting hysterical and we all broke and ran for the car yelling. Running past the back of the car to get in, I noticed a huge handprint in the dust on the back window. We didn't look back and just pulled out and headed out down the road back in the town. She said, I remember it had a bad smell to it, like a wet dog and garbage mixed. 
It was heavily built, but not threatening, really. The total time he looked at us, it was about 10 to 15 seconds, I think. It scared us all. So that's an interesting account to me because that, to me, you know, it doesn't, it didn't appear to be threatening or frightened. It didn't, you know, it wasn't threatening toward them and it didn't seem frightened of them. So it almost makes me wonder, maybe this is the first time it had ever seen people. I don't know. Uh, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting encounter. And she kept calling it he, and it makes me wonder, you know, did she see genitals? Like, why did she call, why does she call it a he? Is it just cause it didn't have breasts? I don't know. But, uh, that's a, that's a really cool encounter. And it kind of goes with what I was saying about maybe these things aren't as acclimated to humans in that area of the country as we think they are. So that's a, uh, that's a really cool story. And, uh, it's too bad that, uh, nobody there whipped out their cell phone and, uh, got a couple of pictures or some video. Um, I would like to think that if I was in that situation, I would, but I mean, you never know. I have also like failed to hit record on my FLIR when I probably should have. So who can say hindsight's 2020, uh, Monday morning quarterbacks at no best, but, uh, that's a, that's a pretty cool story. So this next one is the one I was just talking about with the, uh, the arm that came in through the window. Uh, this happened in 1999. Uh, the reporting party is on Mr. Harold a, uh, says he's a Sitka commercial fisherman. So this is what Mr. Harold a reported. And uh, some of this is going to be a little repetitive because I just talked about it, but this is the actual account. We had our 52 foot signer, saner, sorry, then getting some use as a fish packer up at the south end of Cedar Pass, and it was late. We were just finishing anchor up for the night and about 100 yards from shore, and we were settled. My crew was below, tending to securing gear. I was alone in the cabin, resting at the galley table with the starboard porthole window open above my elbow with the cabin light on as usual. It was dark outside. Just then, I felt something lift my right arm and looked up to see a huge hairy arm, bigger than a gorilla's, reaching through the porthole and lifting my arm. Its arm was covered with dark brown fur, and I could see the whole forearm up to near the elbow. The hand was palm up and huge, being about three times the size of a human hand. The skin was a dirty brownish gray color. The whole of the arm except the palm side of the hand was covered in a four-inch dark brown or black hair. I could not tell if there was a thumb. I wasn't being squeezed or anything, just lifted up. And I would have, I would have to say it felt gentle, but I can tell you, I hollered and put my arm, pulled my arm away. I didn't even look outside. I got the engine started and told the crew to pull anchor. And we moved North up the channel about five or six miles to a new spot before deciding that that would be a better spot to anchor for the night. We didn't hear or see anything else. So that is, uh, the, the porthole encounter as I like to call it. And, uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting encounter. It makes you wonder, was it trying to make contact with him? Uh, was it just reaching in to see if it could grab some food? I mean, it was the galley. Maybe it smelled some food. Uh, you know, he did say they were doing some, uh, fish packing or processing. So maybe it just smelled the fish and was trying to get on the boat to get some fish. I mean, who knows, you know, it's speculation, but, uh, I can't really think of another reason why an animal would uh, want to be on or around a, a vessel like that, unless it was probably for food. So, I mean, that's it's a great story, and uh, I, 
I hope it's true. And if you notice the similarities, like almost all of these accounts in Raincoat Sasquatch, uh, pretty much the color of the creature is described as a really dark brown or black. Uh, mostly, I'd say black is probably the predominant color reported. And almost all of them report like a grayish skin color. So, um, you know, those are the kind of um, kind of things, you know, all those patterns that you look for when you, you hear accounts like that. And all these little things just kind of click into place and line up. And, uh, you know, you hear them from people that don't know each other and have never heard of each other. And they're all telling stories uh, describing almost the same thing. So it's really compelling to hear stuff like that. So here's an interesting one. This is probably, uh, in my opinion, this is probably one of the creepiest ones in the book. Uh, this is reported by Dave and Alberta M. of Ketchikan. <clears throat> and it was, uh, I believe it happened in uh, December 2000. So I'm going to read this one and uh, just uh, keep in mind, uh, try and put yourself in, in these people's shoes as you're, uh, as you're hearing this. My wife and I were parked off just off Ravilla. I'm assuming that's Ravilla. It could be pronounced like Ravilla or something, but it's R-E-V-I-L-L-A. Ravilla Road, near the junction with the paved Ward Lake Road, just enjoying the music from the car radio. It was late, real dark, and we had the car running with the headlights shining on the snow in an open area beside the highway. The light was bright off the snow in a big arc to the left and right, and the snow reflected well enough that we could see anyone or anything were approaching on either side. We had the windows down, and it was real quiet. No other cars or noises around at all. Just then, I noticed a real rank odor, kind of like the smell of wet dog hair, and I looked around. Off to the left, slightly behind the car, and to the side, about 60 yards away, I noticed movement, and could make out a large black form crawling, just like a man on his belly. When I looked at it, it would stop. And when I would look back after a few seconds, it would be crawling and then stop again while I stared at it. It wasn't a bear, and I couldn't think what a person would be doing out there crawling, on, crawling belly down in the snow. I told Alberta to roll up the window. I didn't want whatever it was to come reaching up and grab her through the window. In the light reflecting off the snow, I could see what looked like a faint reddish-whitish reflection from its eyes, and the face appeared almost human. I put the car in gear and pulled away from it and headed back down the highway. The lights didn't swing in its direction again as we got going. It seemed big, about seven feet if it were standing up. I would guess I've heard all the stories about kushtakas and that sort of thing, but I've never heard of them sneaking up on a car, but that's what it seemed to be doing. And uh, that, that to me is pretty, pretty freaking creepy. What was that thing going to do when it got up onto the car? There's a lot of speculation that can be made on that story. Uh, was it just curious? Did it just want to get up there and smell or touch the car? Did it know that there were people inside of it? You know, did it want the people? Did it know the windows were down? You know, and so when, when I hear stuff like that, it makes me think of all the missing person cases in Alaska and, um, just kind of sends a little shiver down my spine. I don't really know what to make of that. Um, I, I hope that story is not true, but, <laughs> but it probably is. Um, yeah. So let's, uh, move on. Let's do one more here. Uh, we're going to talk about this one. This is probably one of my favorite ones in the book. And I'll tell you why after I read it to you. 
All right, this is a story that was relayed by uh, Thomas J. Fisher. It says he's an experienced Ketchikan commercial fishing skipper and hunter. So um, I believe this happened in uh, 1985. So I'm going to read this one to you, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. One evening in July, we had just anchored on the north end of Yacobi Island in Soapstone Bay, about 100 yards offshore, and we were just starting to eat supper. It was a beautiful evening, about seven or eight, with a clear sky. My crewman and I were sitting on the deck watching a huge brown bear on the beach. Oh, I'm sorry. A huge brown bear in the beach grass on the left side of the bay, about 100 yards away. It was big. Its belly was atop, above the tops of the grass. And I would estimate the bear would have squared about 13 feet if stood up. The bear didn't seem bothered by our boat or the Huna fish packer boat near us at all. All of a sudden, we saw the bear's hair go up and it took off to the left, looking back like it was frightened by something over to the right on the beach. We couldn't figure out what had scared it. About 15 minutes later, we both noticed something tall and black moving on the beach about 300 yards to the right. It was shaped like a huge hair-covered man with long black hair all over it. It stopped in the tall grass to look at us. We watched it staring at us for about 15 seconds. The grass came up just to its knees. The crewman and I looked at each other, and we both said, are we looking at the same thing? It seemed to be fully erect like a man, and we estimated its height to be about 9 feet. Then it took off running to the right in the opposite direction from the bear and covered about 100 yards faster than anybody on two legs I've ever seen. It definitely wasn't human, but it didn't look like an ape in its futures. It ran just like a man, but faster, and it was heavier built. I've hunted bears, and there was no way this was a bear. The next day, we walked along through the tall grass all along the shore. It was all about three feet high. Two good-sized black-tailed bucks we saw standing in the grass were covered by the grass to above their shoulders and height. It was clearly a Bigfoot we saw, and I don't worry about what people may say. What I've seen is good enough for me. So the reason that's one of my favorite stories is because it just kind of reminds me when I was on Port Chat or when we were in Port Chatham, and we were walking around, and it just seemed like one side of the area we were in was covered in berries, and there was no bear sign, no bear poop, nothing. And just, you know, just a little ways over to the other side, uh, there were no berries, and there was just bear poop everywhere. And it just made me think that maybe we had walked through some kind of a territorial barrier. And that story to me and Ranko Sasquatch I just read, it always made me think that bears and Sasquatch probably, while they probably occupy a lot of the same areas, they don't really cohabitate that much. They probably try to avoid each other when possible. I'm sure the odd encounter or dispute over food occurs every now and then, but um, I, I just think for the most part, they probably give each other a pretty wide berth. Uh, it just seems like any time I've been anywhere that was really super squatchy and there was a lot of squatch activity or you know, squatch related activity or squatchish activity that there wasn't a lot of bear sign and vice versa. If I saw a lot of bear sign or bear tracks, it seemed like I didn't really run into that much uh, seemingly bear or uh, Sasquatch activity. So it's just kind of a theory I have. I don't really have a whole lot of basis on it other than just some observations and, uh, and that story. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite. It's just because, 
you know, after reading it, it, it kind of put that seed in my head and then going out in the field and, you know, seeing some areas that were completely devoid of bear sign yet finding, you know, human like tracks and, uh, you know, full ripe berry bushes that haven't been touched and then going, you know, just, you know, a little ways away and finding all kinds of bear scat and just completely, you know, empty bear or berry bushes. I, you know, I don't know. It just makes me think that there's probably a, a pretty, a pretty healthy, uh, territorial, um, uh, interaction between those two. They don't really, um, they kind of respect each other's territory. They don't, uh, get in each other's areas unless they absolutely have to, or they're really desperate. Uh, but like I said, it's all speculation. Nobody knows, but, uh, I think it would probably explain how two large, uh, animals like that could probably coexist, uh, in the same, the same area at the same time. They'd probably have to have some pretty, uh, pretty respected boundaries. But, uh, like I said, that's, that's just a, a little theory I have. I, I can't really back it up. Um, and getting back to, uh, the book, you know, those were what was that that was like six stories i just told you and there's a lot more than that in the book like i said the book's over 300 pages there is so much stuff in here um there are chapters and chapters on native legends and the different native beliefs and there's even a really cool chart in the book that shows the different the names the tribes and the similarities uh you know like okay so uh, these natives believe in the Kushtaka, these natives believe in the Chunisqua, and uh, these are, you know, like they both believe that it can talk, and, you know, it's just a, it's a really cool chart that shows the similarities and differences in the different native uh, beliefs uh, in these similar creatures. So that's a really cool part of the book. Uh, what else is in there? Man, there's, um, there's a couple of chapters on some forensic evidence that was found. They talk about potential hairs that were found. Uh, there's some pretty cool stuff in there with uh, some possible nests. And keep in mind, this was back in 2003. This was way before I think the Olympic project had even even thought about there being nests or had uh, went to investigate any type of nests. So uh, Dr. Alley, I think he's a doctor. I keep calling him a doctor. I hope he is. It doesn't say that on his... Uh, on the jacket of the book. <laughs> uh, anyway, Mr. Alley, uh, you know, he was looking at nests back in before 2003, apparently. So he's, he's got, uh, he's got his finger on the pulse of this stuff. <laughs> so anyway, I cannot recommend this book enough. If you're into uh, Bigfoot and even if you're not planning on coming to Alaska or that familiar with Alaska, uh, it's definitely worth your money um, to, to, to pick up just because of all the, I mean, it just, it hits all the bases, you know, there's witness accounts, there's uh, speculation, you know, is it uh, a relic hominid? Is it a species of ape? Is it something else? Uh, there's native beliefs are touched on, you know, forensic evidence is touched on. It is just jam packed with stuff. So that's one of the reasons why I cannot wait to get a hold of his new book. And uh, honestly, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little worried because I get, I build stuff up in my mind and it never meets my uh, expectations. So I'm, I'm hoping that his new book is just as good as Raincoast Sasquatch, if not better. But uh, I guess time will tell. Uh, 
Anyway, I really enjoyed talking about this book with you. I wish I could go through some more stuff with it, but uh, I can't. I just can't. Like I said, the book's three hundred and some pages, and I, you know, I can't. Uh, I can't just re- sit here and read the whole book to you. I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, I don't have the time, and I would probably uh, get sued. So anyway, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this uh, discussion of the book and uh, preview. I hope you enjoyed the stories I read. Uh, if you guys have read it and uh, enjoyed it, uh, let me know what your favorite uh, accounts were or parts of the book. Uh, I'm really curious to hear uh, some more takes on it. So anyway, uh, this has been Alaska Watch. You can email me at alaskwatch at gmail.com. You can find me on the Alaska Watch Facebook page. You can also check out the Kenai Bigfoot Research Group Facebook page, which is connected to the Alaska Watch Facebook page pretty closely. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Kenai Bigfoot. Uh, you can find me on Twitter under Alaska Watch, and also the Kenai Bigfoot Research Group has a Twitter. So uh, give us a follow, give us a like, uh, give us a rating and review, and um, keep your eyes open and tell us if you see anything squatchy. Mm-hmm.